This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. Welcome. I will talk about blockchain archaeology. I think this is the proper way of putting it. I wanted to do such a session already for a very long time. Uh, and now we have proper reason. Um, now the reason is that so on 20th, some very old Bitcoin moved. Bitcoin from February 2009 and people were nervous, including me. I don't have to have to hide anything. I was nervous, not because I thought that Satoshi moved his coins. I was fairly confident that he's not, but I was not, uh, wasn't sure about uh, why somebody would move such coins without telling before or whatever. So today I would like to, to make a, um, to have a session about how can you recognize Satoshi's coins and how many coins are there that that could still move similar to the ones two days ago that are old that are old uh, but at the same time not Satoshi's and how can you quickly react if something like that happens again so this comes down to how why do we how do we know who who mined a block or right, let's take a current block let's take now uh, the, the current hash rate distribution uh, there are charts around in the internet i took this one from blockchain.info i think don't know uh, here you can see that the largest producer of blocks is F2Pool, then Antpool, BTC.com, Poolin. But how do we actually know that? Right? That's the same question that happened two days ago. How do we know if this block was being mined by Satoshi or by somebody else? How do we know that this block is, the more, is mined by F2Pool or by somebody else? The answer now is very different from what it was in the beginning, but let's nevertheless go through, um, through both of them. So if you, if you look at, uh, at a block, then this block includes a lot of transactions, but obviously it also includes the header. That's the, the important thing that we focus on now. The block header is, is kind of giving some meta information referring to the previous block. Uh, and the fields that it has is a version field, which is you, we will omit today. It's used to indicate which uh, features you want to support and which block version you believe is the current correct one. This is, then we have um, 32 byte of the previous block hash, that's like referring to what are you building on. Then we have 32 bytes of the Merkle root. So that's a, essentially, let's really dump it down quite a lot, um, a hash of all the transactions that are included in this block uh, so that you can later like refer back to that. Then we have four bytes for the timestamp. Um, that's in Unix epoch, so second since 1970. Uh, then we have four bytes uh, called n bits, which is like the current um, difficulty threshold. That's really just for consistency sake. You have no freedom what you want to put in there. It's, it's just that, that, you, that you basically say what the current difficulty is for easy comparison if, if, the, if the hash of the block is actually below that, that difficulty. And then there is four bytes for the nonce. The nonce is, we had a few sessions about mining. Um, the nonce is that if you are a miner, then this is an archery field where you can put whatever you want in order to get the, the hash of this header below the difficulty, below the threshold. And so you, you try one hash, try the next hash until you find one where the hash is below the, the difficulty, difficulty threshold. If I talk now about this, uh, we have four. So the only like arbitrary place that we have is the nonce directly in the header. The nonce is four byte. So four byte is, is really not that big. Four byte, the biggest number that you can represent in four byte is four billion something. It's, it's really not that big. 
and you don't have any any room there to, to write the minus name or something. This is just this for for, for quickly um, going through these things. But if you look at at any block, you can use any block explorer for that, uh, and look at the transactions that are indirectly in the header through the Merkle root. Um, then you see that there is always the first transactions, the Coinbase transaction. Coinbase transaction means that this is the base for the new coins. That this is the uh, transaction which does not have an input. They are, they are created from nothing. They do not have an input and they have um, an output. They don't have an input as in they don't refer to anything previous, but still because it's a transaction, because you, you don't really want to break conventions, it does have a field for the input which is essentially an arbitrary field. You can put into that field whatever you want. The input script of this special Coinbase transaction is not verified. Usually this input script would prove that you have the right to move the coins, but since you don't have to prove anything in the Coinbase transaction, you can just write whatever you want into that field. This is actually where in the very first Bitcoin block, we have these, these famous quote of Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks, was in this input field for the Coinbase transaction. Typically, this Coinbase transaction then has one output, which pays out to 50 Bitcoin. Back at the, tape, at the days, now it's 6.25. You can also put it, give it to, to multiple parties, but typically it's like one to the mining pool or to the miner. And uh, nowadays, if you look at, just to, so that you recognize that when you do it, um, if you look at, the, uh, at a block explorer, you will often also find off-return fields. Uh, so additional zero value outputs of this Coinbase transaction that are used to encode additional information. For example, a, a rootstock-based block. So you, you can put additional information also there. But let's discard that. Concentrate only on this input of the Coinbase transaction as just a place to put additional information. That's where you nowadays find the, the name of the mining pool, among other things. Right? So if you, uh, you can do that by, um, if, you, if you're bored, uh, you can just go to, um, go to any block explorer, like blockstream.info or whatever, look up the Coinbase transaction, uh, take the input script, which is there usually shown in, in hexadecimal, copy-paste that into a um, hex to ASCII converter, and then you see the name of the mining pool, like clear text in there. This is, this is where you get this, and the miner puts it there himself, which also tells you like this, this, is, not, this is not really identifying anybody. Right. This is any false flag operations would be easily possible. Is there bots reading this out constantly? What, sir? Like bots or machines reading out, doing what you just explained? Yes. Uh, yes. Process. I mean, this, um, there, there's the, if you go to blockchain.info, they have good graphs for, um, for hash rate distribution, whatever. They produce those graphs based on, on, on reading that out. And they have as a description of their methodology, they write the Coinbase transaction, first transaction in a block helps identifying the mining pool. Its input script usually contains a tag, which can be mapped to the mining pool using pools.json from our public repository blockchain known pools. So they really have a list of which mining pools are there and which tags do they use. They might also change somewhat in between. So they have a, a table there translating that. Also, the same file contains a list of payout addresses linked to mining pools, which are checked against the output addresses of the Coinbase transactions. So they also know which, which address does a mining pool typically pay out to? And, uh, and that mining pool then, and they, they, they compare these addresses. So they would also probably in reasonably short time identify false flag attacks, unless of course the false flag attack also pays out the 6.25 Bitcoin to, but, but hey, I mean, that's, 
risk of doing business, I assume. So yeah, this is this is um, done, and, and, if, and there I, I did not print the numbers, but say 10% unknown pools. Right. Are there also tools where you can monitor that live, like from metrics or some other platform? Well, um, this this hash rate distribution that I brought here, that's like the average over the previous 24 hours, so that is kind oh. of live-ish. So, um, and you can look at a block explorer to, to get the individual ones, but individual ones is like not not that valuable in a sense. Okay, so obviously Satoshi did not do that. He did not write into the inputs Satoshi Nakamoto. Like we have to, um, this was not used. Which brings us to to what was in this Coinbase input um, back then, uh, and I mentioned that the nonce in the header is four byte. Four byte is typically or is very likely not enough to guarantee that you find a valid nonce, a golden nonce, as it's often called. So you, um, if you if you create a block by just creating Merkle root, creating the current timestamp version, whatever, and then you go through nonce through all four billion different options, chances that you don't find, that you don't win. Right? And actually, um, I, I'm, I'm super irritated because I did the math before coming downstairs with, with, the, with the current uh, ant miner S19 at 110 tera hashes per second. Actually, you cycle through these 4 billion possible nonces 25,000 times per second. Yeah, <laughs> I have no idea how this works in practice, but like that would actually be an interesting session. So I, I have no idea how this works in, in, in practice. But, but like at least in theory, was that was also a problem from day one. You were not guaranteed to find a nose, a winning nose in this nose field. So what, what do you do then? There are a few things that you can do. You could change the time, right, which is probably even reasonable to do from time to time, like every second. Um, but version 0 0.1 of, um, of the Bitcoin core software, um, Bitcoin QT, no, what was it called back then? Well, that was even pre-Bitcoin QT, so probably Bitcoin, whatever. Does that roughly every 10 seconds. Um, there is, there's no need to have an exact time. You can change the version, let's leave that out, but next thing is you can change the Merkle root, which is uh, either reordering transactions, like just the, the order of transactions in the block, uh, or you put something in this Coinbase transaction. And this is what, what happened, which is not part, I have to really emphasize that, that's not part of the Bitcoin protocol. It's not enforced in any way or part of the consensus mechanism, but it's just something reasonable to do in this one. Um, you just modify this input of the Coinbase transaction. And for that, already back in this 0 0.1 version of Bitcoin, there, there, there was a field by default used in this, in this input, which is called the extra nonce. So once you go through, you increase the extra nonce and go through again. So um, you have to recalculate the Merkle tree then to get the Merkle root to put it into the header, but that's that's fine-ish. It's not fine to do that 25,000 times a second. That's why I'm irritated, but it is fine to do that like every now and then. Bitcoin back in the days, I mean, you know, there was like zero dot, version 0 0.1, not of the protocol that was fixed, but 0 0.1 of, uh, of the software was for a reason because was very much pre-version one. It was was very buggy. It had implications that has uh, didn't um, really security things at the time, but it also had a lot of privacy problems. One is that this extra nose happened to not be reset. So if you if you mine and you, you find a block, then you calculate the next next block, but you just 
continue with this extra noise to increase that over time. But you could change it if you... If you could change, but the default client did not. So you, you had this extra noise which, which increases, which, which gives the, uh, this extra noise field. If you look at that field in old blocks, gives it something like, like a, a very rough estimate for how long has that particular machine that ran, uh, that, that calculated that block, how long has that machine been running? Or when was that, that program last time restarted? Like it's, it's, it's very roughly something like a, uh, like a timer since an uptime timer for, for that program. For yeah. that machine? For, for that program. It would restart if you restart Bitcoin. You don't have to reboot the machine, but for, for that machine, yes. So the time was not on the machine, but on that version of Bitcoin, that software or that software that was run on that machine? All of the above. So if you, if you would uh, restart the program just by, by, by hey, Either hello, IT, have you tried turning it off and on again? Yeah. Uh, then it would start from an extra noise of zero again. Okay. And continue, would, would start counting. Okay, so um, by looking at these things, by, by looking at this, um, at this extra noise, you can find patterns in the early blocks and identify which blocks have likely been mined by the same machine, by the same run of the same machine, yeah, even, even though there is no identifier in this, uh, in this input script. So I will, I will try to do this uh, so that it's also possible to listen in by audio only, but we will also now look at, look at the screen. But this is, uh, this is a website, satoshiblocks.info. Uh, they did precisely that. It's from um, Sergio Lerner, Sergio Damian Lerner. I am not quite sure how to pronounce him. He came up with this analysis by looking at the Bitcoin code and, and, and identifying these privacy things and then doing the analysis. And, and he also, uh, he sees also otherwise a well-known guy. Like for example, he and Timo Hanke together have the patent on ASIC boost uh, and Sergio Lerner is, uh, is a big name in Woodstock. Um, so he's, he's like around one of the defaults. So, and, and as, I, as I mentioned, uh, you, you get a, if, you, if you put on the x-axis uh, the block height and on the y-axis this extra noise, then you will find uh, like straight lines for one particular machine. And this is precisely what you see on the satoshiblocks.info page, which does in, in this particular one, the one that you see right now, you see blue lines for the ones that are believed to be Satoshi, and you see green for everything else. So why do people believe that, that these things, these, all these blue ones are Satoshi? Well, for, for a very few blocks, you do know that it was Satoshi. For example, Satoshi gave away coins a few times. So other people to help, Finney was the very first transaction that was actually ever done. So you can mark a few particular um, blocks as being, um, as being owned by Satoshi. And then it's, it does look quite likely. There is a very, very clear pattern. Right. You, you see these lines starting from zero, um, having a slope going up, and once one line finishes, another line starts up at zero and goes, goes up again. So this is, this is really Satoshi restarting his machine, or restarting his, his node software at least. Can you give it a time frame? So let's say he did it at 2,800 typically. The, the ones that all have roughly the same height, that's roughly every 100 hours. So this very much looks like, looks like him like stopping the software in order to back up the wallet or something of that type, just as a scheduled job every now and then, and then restarting from there. 
uh, you will also find quite a few uh, situations where where this is not the case or where, where he deviates from this pattern of course very early on like the very first days he restarted and restarted and restarted there is a one line around uh, blocks 1400 to 2000 uh, which has a different slope than the others looks like his computer was slower at the time but if you zoom in there then you see that two lines so this might just have been an, an, an ops mistake by accidentally starting the software twice which slows down each of these runs but in total they they still do do the full capacity of the computer you can spend like probably a year on looking at this data. There is there's a lot of things in this data and I will definitely not go into all of them. One thing that I find, for example, very interesting is that, that if you look at the blue lines, which are believed to be Satoshi, and the green lines, which are believed to not be Satoshi, Satoshi's computer was faster than everybody else, right? by roughly a factor of 4.3. So it's more efficient possible. It was, uh, there are a few possible um, solutions to this and, um, and, and and if you, this, this website also links quite a lot of blog posts. Uh, one gives a very convincing explanation, but really just go through the blog posts, it's fun to read. But you can really see that, that almost everybody has roughly the same, roughly the same speed in his computer and Satoshi is just much, much faster. Yeah, the, the, the very likely solution is that he had five, maybe six computers running, but you would usually expect that you then get like five or six lines. This is not what he got. Um, he got one line which moved faster and he did that by using this noise field in a way that is synchronized across all these five or six machines by using the least significant byte as an identifier. It's, it's really fun to, to look at. If I now switch to which of, the, uh, which of the block rewards are still on the original addresses and which of the block rewards are spent, almost everybody uh, there are a few exceptions. Almost everybody who mined early on did spend his coins somewhere. Satoshi's did not move. So the, the particular block that, that moved now uh, two days ago was uh, number 3654. Uh, and this website was up like earlier than that. So if, if I can look that up in, in seconds if you know what you're looking for next time that something bad like that moves. It's here still marked as, as unspent because it's uh, like they, they took the snapshot of what is spent and what is unspent sometime in 2014. Uh, maybe I should have mentioned this. This article from Sergio Lerner is uh, also from 2013. So this, this goes on for a while. So if you look at this particular block, which was now spent, it's very obvious that this is not Satoshi. Let's zoom out of this a bit to get an impression. And then you do see that this block is like part of part of a straight line. Very likely they all belong to the very same person. So all of those coins are now likely to also move in the future. And we can even one up that a tiny bit because that person might also have done the same pattern. There starts another line which might belong to the same person, not quite sure. This is not that obvious, but, um, but this is just from, um, from all the early blocks. There are not that many that are actually unspent. And most of the ones that are unspent are like, it's like somebody switching on his software, letting it run for 10 minutes and then forgetting about it. Those will likely never move. Um, but of the, of the remaining ones, of the ones that, that, are, that have significant amounts on it, uh, we most likely, the ones that move now are is, is like half of those. To make a very rough estimate, it seems to be around 100 blocks 
maybe maybe a bit more than that. So it's five thousand Bitcoin. <laughs> it's five thousand Bitcoins, roughly forty-five million US dollars. So it's not nothing. I think it's 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 warranted that the price dropped a bit, but not a big deal. That's it's, it's really not that big of a deal. If somebody were aiming for minimum impact, you would probably have done it before the halving, and not in a situation where kind of the, the nervousness around the price is, is at this level. Um, but I think that's still not really something to worry about. Okay. That's so who was it? And no, nobody knows. But this is maybe also some, something to be aware of. So next time you actually hear that, yeah, Satoshi moved his coins, just consult this thing. It's, it's fairly comprehensive. But there are quite a few. There are three groups of blocks now. There are those that are clearly Satoshis, those that are clearly not, and a large percentage also that is unclear. And if, if those move, uh, nervousness would probably be a big, bit bigger. And if one of Satoshi moves, then the nervousness would be extreme. Why would you say that everybody is so sensitive to this uh, Satoshi coins moving if they would move? Why, why is it? I mean, movement does not mean spending, first of all. Yeah. Okay, traces, fair enough. But maybe. So it's not a direct link. Maybe he's not even doing it himself if he still exists. If it exists. There are two big things. Um, one thing is, yeah, one, one thing is that um, Satoshi might still have influence. That was very much a big debate and big hope and big fear um, of people back in 2016 when it was about um, increasing the block size or not increasing the block size. What was Satoshi's, um, I don't want to say vision, but what, <laughs> what was uh, Satoshi's idea when he reduced the block size? Was it intended to be increased again, or was it not intended to be increased again, or was it introduced very stealthily? So maybe it was like stealthily fixing a bug. Um, maybe it was intended as a, as a temporary fix. There, there was no, and if, if Satoshi would come back, then uh, he would clearly have a voice in these things. But I think this was a fear in 2016. This is no longer a fear. Satoshi does not matter anymore. If you would turn up now and give his opinion and say, okay, thanks for your opinion. Um, like he, 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 this is not his project. This is, yeah, I'm hopeful of that at least. Um, the other thing is that if you look at, at, at the total supply of Bitcoin, we are at 18 million something, I think, that, that there are estimates on how much of that is lost. And of course, if you do a, a value, any valuation model, then you have to account for how many, how big is the supply potentially, the supply of, of movable coins, uh, not the supply hitting the exchanges. That's yet another value, but the, the total amount of movable coins. And for those, um, Satoshi's coins are discounted as unmovable. So based on this analysis, Satoshi um, owns 1.1 million Bitcoin. Uh, and if those would move and would enter the potentially available supply, um, then I mean, do the math for the valuation models. This is probably the bigger concern right now. But still, he could think of crypto storage being a very good solution, come up as a company person, whatever, and move all coins into your storage solution. And it's very recommended. And you will never spend it. Well, if he intends to never spend it, then the better solution would be to destroy the keys or to send it to an provably non-existent address. 
So just by definite never. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's just the yeah. the point of currently um, the, the current valuation models assume that those coins are lost, and if they turn out to not be lost, that changes valuation. Are there any other questions? There are no more questions. Then uh, thank you very much. This episode was brought to you by Crypto Finance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch.